We're continuing this morning in the Gospel of John, our series that's called God is Like Jesus. We're looking at the Gospel of John, trying to understand more about God is like, what God is like by focusing on the person of Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he said, how he acted, how he interacted with people, because God has revealed himself in Jesus. And if we want to understand who God is, this is the most concrete, visible form that we can find. Today we're going to read from John chapter 8, the first 11 verses. This is a rather famous story, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And if you have a Bible and look at it, you will likely see something marked around this text that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not include this story. Uh, most of our Bibles that we have today do include it, and there's all kinds of discussion, of course, about how, whether it actually happened and where it should be in John. We're going to assume that it happened and that John put it in this place, or somebody put it in this place for a reason, and so we're going to uh, pay attention to it. So we'll start, uh, actually, it's 8.53, um, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I con condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is a fairly uh, brutal story. Whatever its source, it comes to us almost like a sledgehammer. There's very little nuance in this story, very little subtlety. It's just there, and it's rough, and it's raw. There's a hint of violence in the air. And the comments I'd like to make about the story today um, also probably are not going to be very nuanced. I'm going to say a few things that might be a little surprising or maybe even a little shocking or, or different than you've heard before, or maybe emphasizing things in a different way that you've heard before. I realize that Everyone's experience with God and with the Christian faith is different. And I don't want to minimize at all any fruitful or gracious relationships that any of us listening might have with God. On the other hand, I have 
fairly long experience in the church, in ministry, on different continents, and with many different kinds of people. Not to discount my own theological training and my observations about the church as it manifests itself today. If you find anything that I say this morning disturbing or terribly off balance or unfair, please don't hesitate to contact me. It's not my desire to be unfair or unbalanced. But this story, again, wherever it comes from, is included in our Bible, and it's a tough one. And it's not a nuanced story. It comes pretty hard at us if we'll listen to it. So here we go. So the story tells about the Pharisees and scribes who brought a woman to Jesus who had been caught in adultery. And you remember, perhaps from last week, that we talked about in the, in the Gospel of John, that John sets apart the Jews, with quotation marks, the Jews, describing the whole sector of Jewish leaders who... Um, who were in opposition to Jesus. And a group within that would be the Pharisees and scribes. The Pharisees and scribes in general were were in opposition to Jesus. Not everyone. Nicodemus, for example, was a Pharisee, and he was not throughout his whole life in opposition to Jesus. But in this story, the Pharisees and scribes that confronted Jesus were because, John says, they brought the woman to Jesus in order to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they were looking for something that they could use to concretely say, this man is not the kind of leader we need. Perhaps he needs to be put away. And perhaps, as we've heard previously, maybe even be killed. It is true that in our uh, circles, the Pharisees often get a bad rap But in general, they were not as evil as we tend to make them out to be. The New Testament, when it talks about the Pharisees, does cast them in a bit of a negative light. But if you read the historians of that time, there's actually not that much written about them, particularly Josephus is the main one. You find that the Pharisees and the scribes as a subset were people who were sincerely trying to understand What is God's will for our lives as Jewish people? And how can we so live in relationship to God, so live as the kind of people that he's called us to live, that we'll be ready for the Messiah to come? And that Messiah is the one who is going to free us from, in this case, the Roman oppression. So in general, they had good motives. They were, they were spiritual people. They were concerned about the law of God. They were concerned about living in harmony with him and in harmony with each other. It's just that sometimes they got off the track and were a little too focused on the details. And, of course, they were upset with Jesus because he did not keep the law in the same way they did, that is, with the same detail. You remember, perhaps, we've already read a couple stories where Jesus um, would heal someone on the Sabbath, and it was the Pharisees and the scribes that would complain about that. 
They were concerned that if Jesus was not the true Messiah, the true Jew, that the people would follow him and he would lead them off on a path that would end up in destruction. And again, you can place this conflict and tension right in our present day, where both of our political parties are saying to the other, if you follow them, we're finished. It's that kind of tension that the Pharisees were dealing with in their, in their lives and, and trying to do what they could to ensure the purity and thus the growth and thus the survival of the Jewish people. And when they came to Jesus with this woman, they had Moses behind them. You notice they say, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Leviticus 20.10, Moses says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And in Deuteronomy 22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge what the evil from Israel. Commentators, of course, go into some lengthy explanations about why the man wasn't there. Uh, we don't really know why the man wasn't there, but he wasn't, so I'm not really going to spend any time on that, and neither am I going to spend any time about um, what Jesus wrote on the ground because nobody knows. There's all kinds of speculation, but nobody knows that. But the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and saying, look, this is the law. These are the rules. And our God demands that we keep the rules. And if we don't keep the rules, we're going to end up derailed as a nation. The law is central. And if we don't keep these rules, if we don't keep the law, we're going to get in trouble, whatever you define as trouble. That was the central uh, thought and way of operation of the Pharisees. And what I'd like to suggest to us is that our Western Christianity looks a lot like that. We believe and have been taught that God has given us his law revealed in the Bible. And we are to keep it. If God says do this, we're supposed to do it. And if God says don't do that, then we're not supposed to do it. And if we do what we're not supposed to do or don't do what we're supposed to do, what ends up happening is we get punished. Sometimes that punishment might happen here on earth. But in the end, ultimately, there is what we call eternal punishment. But of course, none of us can keep the law. None of us is perfect. None of us get 100% on the spelling test. We fail every day. So without some kind of an intervention we would end up being punished, either again in this life or certainly in the life to come. 
But, and this is called the good news, Jesus came and he kept the law in our place. And when he died on the cross, he took our punishment on him in our place. And when we accept what he did for us, it becomes as if we have kept the law. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our failure to keep the law or our commission of sin. He sees the perfection of Jesus. And so he forgives us and spares us from punishment. And my quibble with that is, is that that turns our relationship with God fundamentally into a transaction. Into a law relationship. God demands something from us, and if we don't do it, he demands a sacrifice. Lately, I've wondered to myself if there really is any much difference between the pagan gods who all demand a sacrifice. Think of the Incas and the Mayas. And our God who demands a sacrifice. The essential difference is, what's the sacrifice? But what's happening is a God who gives us the law, who gives us the rules, who demands that we keep them, and when we don't keep them, demands a death as punishment. About 40 years ago, I read an interview in a magazine by an Episcopalian priest by the name of Robert Farr Capon. And it was an interview in which he talked about grace, and he talked about grace based on the parable of the publican and the Pharisee, and I'm going to get to that in a second. But what Robert Farr Capon says about grace and says about our tendency to relate to God on the basis of a transaction 40 years ago blew my mind. It's been blowing my mind ever since. He died in 2013, I believe. He says, religion is always a transaction. Always something that people do for God in order to get God to do something for them. The human race is positively addicted to keeping records and remembering scores. But if God has announced anything in Jesus, it is that he, for one, has pensioned off the bookkeeping department permanently. God has sent the bookkeeping department with pension. You can go retire. You are not needed on the work floor anymore. 
And further, Capon says, Jesus will come to the world's sins with no list to check, no tests to grade, no debts to collect, no scores to settle. He will wipe away the handwriting that was against us and nail it to his cross. Colossians 2.14 literally says that. He will save not some little bits of good little boys and girls with religious money in their piggy banks, but the stone broke, deadbeat, overextended children of this world whom he will set free in the liberation of his death. There's one thing that this story of the woman caught in adultery just blasts us with. It's the fact that there is no record keeping. The Pharisees drift off. No one dares to cast a stone. And Jesus says, where have they gone? Is there no one left? Is there no one to condemn you? She says, no, they're all gone. And what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. The woman was caught in sin. She had made no profession of faith. She had done nothing except probably lie on the ground, scared to death, maybe already bleeding. Wondering if this, these were not her last minutes on earth. And Jesus threw the record book away. Threw the accountancy book away. Sent the accountant with pension. And said, neither do I condemn you. In his books, Robert Farr Capon wrote three books on the parables of Jesus. And in his book, The Parables of Grace, he talks about the parable of the, par of the Pharisee, Pharisee again, and the publican. And he says this, Forget the prejudice that Jesus' frequently stinging remarks about the Pharisees have formed in your mind. Give this particular Pharisee all the credit you can get. You're, you remember the story, right? These two, the Pharisee and the publican go to the temple. The Pharisee makes a prayer thanking God for all the good he has done. The publican says, oh, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the publican that went home justified. Give this particular Pharisee all the credit you can. He is, after all, a good man. To begin with, he's not a crook. He's not a time server. He's not a womanizer. He takes nothing he hasn't honestly earned. He gives everyone he knows fair and full measure. And he is faithful to his wife, patient with his children, and steadfast for his friends. He's not at all like this publican this tax farmer, who is the worst kind of crook, a legal one, a big operator, a mafia-style enforcer working for the Roman government on a nifty franchise that lets him collect from his fellow Jews, mind you, 
from the people whom the Romans might have trouble finding, but whose whereabouts he knows and whose language he speaks, all the money he can bleed out of them, provided only he pays the authorities an agreed flat fee. He's been living for years on the cream he has skimmed off their milk money. He's a fat cat who drives a stretch limo, drinks nothing but Shivas Regal, and never shows up at a party without at least two $500 a night call girls in tow. And they both go and pray. And the publican walks away justified. And then Capon says, our love of justification by works is so profound that at the first opportunity we run from the strange light of grace straight back to the familiar darkness of the law. You don't believe me? I shall prove it to you. The publican goes down to his house justified rather than the other. Well and good, you say, yes, indeed. But let me follow him now in your mind's eye as he goes through the ensuing week and comes once again to the temple to pray. What is it that you want to see him doing in those seven days? What does your moral sense tell you he ought to at least try to accomplish? Are you not itching as his spiritual advisor to urge him into another line of work? Something perhaps a little more upright than putting the arm on his fellow countrymen for fun and profit? In short, do you not feel compelled to insist on at least a little bit of reform? To help you be as clear as possible about your feelings, let me set you two exercises. For the first, take him back to the temple one week later and have him go back there with nothing reformed in his life. Walk him in this week as he walked in last week. After seven full days of skimming, wenching, and high-priced scotch. Put him through the same routine. Eyes down, breast smitten, God be merciful, and all that. Now then, I trust you see that on the basis of the parable as told, God will not mend his divine ways any more than the publican did his wicked ones. He will do this week exactly what he did last. God, in short, will send him to his house justified. The question in this first exercise is, do you like that? And the answer, of course, is that you do not. You gag on the unfairness of it. The rat is getting off free. For the second exercise, therefore, take him back to the temple with at least some reform under his belt. No wenching this week, perhaps, or drinking cheaper scotch and giving the difference to the heart fund. What do you think now? What is it that you want God to do with him? Question him about the extent to which he's mended his ways? For what purpose? If God didn't count the Pharisees' impressive list, why should he bother with this two-bit one? Or do you want God to look at his heart 
not his list, and commend him for good intentions at least. Why? The point of the parable was that the publican confessed that he was dead, not that his heart was in the right place. And here's the sentence that I read 40 years ago. Why are you so bent on destroying the story by sending the publican back for his second visit with the Pharisee's speech in his pocket? All the commentary commentators on this story of the woman caught in adultery will talk about Jesus' grace. Jesus forgave her. What amazing grace. And then they go immediately to this big but. But then Jesus said, go and sin no more. Yes, it's okay to have the grace. But now you've got to go and sin no more. And in the words of Copan, are we trying to send this woman back with the Pharisee speech in her pocket? Can you imagine that Jesus is not demanding that this woman shape, shape her life up. It's pretty hard, isn't it? We're not built that way. We haven't been taught that. All of our training, almost, and all of our sermonizing, and all of our Bible studies, basically tell us there is grace if you've sinned. But then you really had better reform. Even, even if you don't succeed, but just if it's even in your heart. If you want God's love. And we're busy to send the publican back with the Pharisee's speech in his pocket in direct opposition to the parable that Jesus told. And I believe this story. Because what if Jesus did say to the woman, go and sin no more. But what if he's not perpetuating legalism? What if Jesus is not saying to her, okay, you got away this week. But if you do it again, you might not get away from with it. If you do it again, I might not be so merciful. If you do it again, or maybe even if you think about doing it again, I might condemn you next time. Is that what Jesus is doing? It can't be. That's not who Jesus is. This is not uh, a bait and, what's a bait and trick? Bait, bait and switch. This is not you get grace now, but you better watch it.
You see how that's been driven so deep into us. What if Jesus is extending her an invitation? An invitation to life. An invitation to union with him. An invitation to his eternal embrace of love, grace, mercy, and strength. Regardless of her weaknesses, sins, and shortcomings. I find it fascinating that this story is rooted in a sexual sin. Because those kind of sins go so deep into the very fiber of who we are. Our desire for love, our desire for acceptance, our desire to have someone embrace us, our desire to embrace, our desire to become one with another person. All of that's so deeply rooted in us and in our sexuality. And Jesus is not saying to this woman, do not sin anymore in the sense of, here's the law, don't you ever break it again. But why would you stay away from this life, from this eternal embrace, from this love, from this grace, from this mercy, from this strength? The good news is not God hated you, but because of Jesus, now he doesn't. The good news is God loves you, and now we know it because of Jesus. And no sin of yours will make a barrier between you and him as far as Jesus is concerned. If you want to walk away, that's another story. But as far as Jesus is concerned, there is no barrier between him and his love for you. Does no one condemn you? Then neither do I. Now come. Live in this embrace. Quote theologian Brad Jersock, what if Jesus' words, go and sin no more, are for her not a legal demand, but a creative command similar to let there be light, and there was light. The love of Christ as a light turned on in the Father's house, and he knew she would never leave that light again. Or if somehow she did find herself tripping again on her own humanity, she would forever, every time, turn around and orient herself towards God's welcome rather than fleeing from it back into the night.
this idea of of our relationship with God being a transaction is is just deeply, 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 deeply rooted in us. And I think it's deeply, deeply flawed. God does not love you because you keep His rules. He doesn't love you because you've reformed or are reforming or even want to reform. And the immediate response to that is, well, if that's the case, then we can do anything we want. And that's like putting your nose in a meat slicer. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is putting out an invitation to turn from what doesn't give life, to turn to Him who does give life. I'm sure that will have an impact on things you do and things you don't do. But that's not what it's about. Paul says it later. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. The good news is not God hated you, but now because of Jesus, He doesn't. It's God loves you. If you look at Jesus, you hear these words. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and live in my light. And that is a terribly, terribly, terribly difficult struggle to grasp that. But I guarantee you, and I guarantee you, if you really want to grasp it, it's going to take a lot of work. It's not going to take one sermon. Hopefully it won't take you as long as it's taken me. I've been working on it for 40 years. Hopefully you can do it shorter. It's going to take a lot of work to change that way of thinking and move into a way of thinking that sees Jesus as inviting you into this new creation this union with Him, where there is real freedom. Freedom to fall, freedom to fail, and freedom to succeed. And freedom to live. And just like we've always said over the last few weeks with Jesus talking about Himself being the living water and the living bread, I want to invite you to this Jesus who today looks at you and says, I don't condemn you. My relationship to you is not built on the law. It's not built on what you've done or not done. Throw those books away. Send those accountants into their pension. Forget about them. It's not what this is about. I love you. And I want to be with you. Now let's go.